We know that stocks go up. If you look back at history, you know, roughly three out of every four years, stocks go up. And that's 100 years plus of public market experience in the United States. So it's not like we're making something up. We're not cherry picking a data set that works to our advantage. That's just reality. Capitalism is the greatest system in the world for creating wealth. So if you live with that, then you try to stop the short term thinking. But that's really difficult to do with human emotions the way they are. For a decade, Cahaba Wealth Management has been driven by a belief that our fiduciary responsibility is to have conversations with you, our current and future clients, to discover what really matters to you. Wealth is not created overnight. Instead, it is earned by having a solid blueprint that allows you to plan and build for the future. Our goal with this podcast is to share our best practices and strategies about creating a secure and joyous future, while also addressing ideas in the marketplace that do not work as well. Join us on this journey as we discuss the ups and downs of the investment world to educate you and help you make the best possible decisions for your financial well-being. Let's go now to the There Is a Better Way podcast. Hello, listeners. This is MJ Durkin, the host of the There Is a Better Way podcast brought to you by Cahaba Wealth Management. Uh, I'm going, going to introduce to you someone that you've uh, heard before. Uh, his name is Brian O'Neill. He is the president and founder of Cahaba Wealth Management. Uh, Brian O'Neill, how are you today? I'm doing great, MJ. How are you? <laughs> I am uh, relaxed, feeling good, positive. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and I, I, uh, I tell the beautiful Bonnie, my wife, every morning, "Hun, I'm an optimist. Better than that than being a pessimist. <laughs> she says, she always says, it's one of the reasons I married you. Because <laughs> I, I think that that's actually a good quote. I believe it was maybe Mark Twain that says, pessimists have to experience bad news twice when they're worrying about it and if and when it actually happens. So I kind of prefer to be an optimist as well. <laughs> nice, nice. So um, for uh, for this episode of the podcast, we, uh, we've got a really, I'm, I'm really fascinated to talk with you. Uh, about this uh, uh, this topic, uh, which is uh, the 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 for our listeners, we're going to be talking about we're going to be calling this investing, um, good stories, or good storytellers. And uh, uh, Brian, tell tell us the uh, the 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 context of uh, of this title. The main reasoning behind thinking of investing this way is that investing has been made to be complex by our industry. Um, I'm a part of that industry. I understand that. But the reality is for what ultimately is the results people get as investors in many and truthfully, most cases, simple is better. And stripping away all of the uh, storytelling, which is designed to tug on people's, whether it's their heartstrings or the normal human behavior that uh, has people feel like, well, if I don't do that, I'm missing out on something. What we've learned, and we have the empirical evidence to back this up, is that the vast majority of what are referred to as active investment managers in our industry don't beat the benchmark they measure themselves against. And we'll discuss, we, I referenced that in our initial podcast, talking about the SPIVA scorecard, which is S&P index versus active. And when you get into the middle 90 percentile of active managers that do not beat their stated benchmark, it tells you they have great stories to tell, but the story itself isn't actually real. 
So they're going to gloss it up with, you know, amazing commercials and these people holding hands on the beach and all these things that they've done to get somebody to retirement when in actuality, a boring old index fund more often than not is a better way to be an investor. And then using rules to rebalance a portfolio is a far better story than the stories you hear at cocktail parties about these great investments that people have been put into. So we like to keep our clients focused more on the, the data and the nuts and bolts of investing. And uh, instead of trying to sell them something that sounds sexy, that really isn't. Well, I, I, I think it's really well said. And I, and I, you know, I've seen for years, uh, you know, various, uh, whether it's an article in a newspaper or Forbes, you know, a financial, you know, periodical, even like you said, the commercial, of the, the couple, the, the very trim, very, um, you know, healthy looking couple that, uh, you know, have white hair and look like they have the bodies of 20 year olds. Um, I, I love those guys. Um, but, uh, but you hear, you do hear the story of, you know, this, uh, you, you reference it as the, the, uh, the myth of the superstar investment manager, you know, so-and-so has uh, done this and they've got it handled. Uh, and, um, uh, I can see how that I, I can even think of some of the names of some of the people that I've heard, you know, uh, you know, so-and-so has done this, you know, 15 years in a row. And, uh, uh, and it sounds good. It reminds me when I was a, a pump salesman, I used to call on a, on a plumber when I was very young and he used to go to Atlantic city all the time. His name was Romeo Morelli and <laughs> Romeo always on a Monday, I would always call him on a Monday and he would tell me all of his great uh, um, successes at the casino. <laughs> and his sons pulled me aside one time and said, you know, dad is really quite broke and is not doing all well, but I got so excited about Atlantic city listening to Romeo. Yeah. They tell about you about the successes, success. not the failures. And I mean, what, what human being wants to go in and talk about their failures. Right. So again, it's the human brain is wired in certain ways. I've, I have referenced many times through the years, um, the best book I've ever read, and it has nothing to do with financial planning. Um, it's called The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. And it has to do with these two Israeli psychologists who ultimately ended up winning a Nobel Prize for behavioral economics and their work in human decision making. And it's stuff like that that comes really comes up to the forefront. And, you know, we will tell all of our, our anybody who's willing to listen, we focus on financial planning. Now, why are we sitting here talking about investing in this podcast? Because investing is the most in-your-face part of financial planning. Um, you generally are not going to have to sit there and think about your insurance coverage all day, every day. or And your taxes are there, but you don't think about them every day. But all you have to do is turn on the TV and you'll see what happened in the stock market this week and uh, what's going on in the world and why you should be scared to death about investing. So planning is at the core of what we do. But the mistakes that people make in investing are what actually keep them from achieving their financial plans. So we do have to spend time talking about it, even though we are very clear that we think investing is just one part of the financial planning process. And so nobody's going to have an advertisement that talks about how bad a year they had as an investment manager. <laughs> so they're going to focus on their wins. And one of the unique pieces that comes out of that discussion of the SPIVA scorecard uh, which I refer back to is they actually have tracking that shows how many times a mutual fund, for example, 
has actually done so poorly that they've just decided the company's just decided to close it and fold it into another fund, thus literally wiping from history the performance of that fund. And so even then the numbers are still terrible in terms of which active funds beat their benchmarks, and they've wiped away hundreds, if not thousands of mutual funds by doing that. Um, one of the things I like to say to people, and this is, it may not be exact, I'm referring to something from a website called Statista. So uh, take that with a grain of salt. But in Statista suggests that at the end of 2021, there were 7,481 different mutual funds currently operating. And the way I like to refer to that is that's the rough equivalent of people being told there are 7,481 Michael Jordans out there managing money. They're all the best money managers the world has ever seen. And we know that's not possible. There's one Michael Jordan, or I guess if I'm being more relevant, one LeBron James, or maybe it's Steph Curry these days. There are not that many superstars at anything. And yet we're tried to, we are told that the mutual fund industry is chock full of superstars and every one of them is going to beat their benchmarks. None of them do. So it's a hard message to try to get across to clients uh, that, you know, we will say on occasion, I'm not going to give you anything to talk about at a cocktail party. We are going to bore you to wealth. And we're going to do that through a discipline process. And part of that discipline is acknowledging that active management rarely beats passive. And thus, we are avoiding the great storytellers. Well, uh, you know, uh, it's it's hard to say. Um, uh, uh, here's here's what you should talk to, talk about at the next cocktail party: rules to rebalance your portfolio with dull. Cahaba Wealth. Correct. Yeah, very dull, and you know that in some levels probably harms us from a marketing perspective. <laughs> But at the core, we have a fiduciary duty to our clients to do what's in their best interests. And when the evidence tells me that 90 plus percent of all active mutual funds fail to beat their benchmarks, why would I spend my time trying to pick that 10% that might beat? And by the way, you'd have had to pick those 10% 20 years ago, because this is a 20 year view of, of performance. Um, and that we would have had the patience to stay with that the entire time. There are, investing is really, really difficult not because it's complex, but because it is so hard emotionally. This year has been horrible as an investor. Um, it shouldn't be horrible just living through it. We know that stocks go up. If you look back at history, you know, roughly three out of every four years, stocks go up. And that's 100 years plus of public market experience in the United States. So it's not like we're making something up. We're not cherry picking a data set that works to our advantage. That's just reality. Capitalism is the greatest system in the world for creating wealth. So if you live with that, then you try to stop the short-term thinking, but that's really difficult to do with human emotions the way they are. And so in a year like 2022, stocks are down. Uh, prior to today, we're having one of the best days we've had in years as, as we look at the market today, November 10th. But they're down 18% even after today. Bonds are down 16% this year. That's never happened before. There's been nowhere to hide. So as an investor, the, the common refrain is, well, what am I supposed to do? And the short answer is for our clients this year, we haven't been able to do much because we have not been able to rebalance because both stocks and bonds have gone down together. And doing nothing sometimes is the default answer. And it's not a bad answer if you're still doing what you need to do for the overall goals of your financial plan. 
Got it. Got it. So let's um, let's let's uh, switch a little bit and talk about um, perhaps in in the past uh, there there were some successes that people could point to. Uh, you started uh, as an advisor in 1996. Yes. Um, tell yeah, us about. Yeah, it's a great segue because in 1996 things were very different, and you could find active mutual fund managers who had had very good success. Um, there are a lot of things. There are a lot of things that have changed since then, and each one of them, on some levels, has made it more difficult for those active managers. Um, I think the biggest adjustment has been the combination of the reduction in expenses for trading, which has led to other products that can serve the same kinds of needs. Uh, I gave examples when, when I started, and I am really going to date myself here. If you wanted to buy a stock if a client called me and said, I want to buy a stock, we had to fax a piece of paper up to New York City where a trading desk would ex execute upon that trade. And in most cases would charge the client hundreds of dollars of commission. We didn't earn that commission. The trading desk did. So that was 1996 in a nutshell. Uh, fast forward today, I can trade any stock sitting at my computer screen and every equity that I trade, uh, whether it's on our, we, we clear our clients' assets either through Fidelity or Charles Schwab, it's free. They don't pay anything to buy or sell. And that applies to stocks um, and exchange traded funds, ETFs. Um, so number one, that reduction in cost has allowed the index providers. So it used to be Vanguard was the, the biggest index, biggest mutual fund company in the world. Uh, John Bogle invented the index fund in the 1970s. Their largest fund, the Vanguard 500 index fund, which replicates the S&P 500 index. Um, and I could, you can't pull the actual number, but back in the late 90s, you'd probably pay about a half percent per year to own that fund. So if you were the in individual investor, put $10,000 in that, they were going to charge you a half percent per year of trading costs or um, marketing costs or whatever, and they call it the expense ratio. Well, today, that same fund you can buy for 0.04%, so four one hundredths of a percent. The cost has come almost to zero. Uh, the actual S&P index fund that we buy for our clients costs three one hundredths of one percent. Compare that to an actively managed mutual fund, which there's no specific number, but the average is usually between one and one and a quarter percent annually. On January 1st of every year, an active managed mutual fund wakes up behind its benchmark index, if they're benchmarking against the S&P, by almost a full percent. You better be a great investor to make up 1% of performance every year just because of your cost. And that cost doesn't benefit the end investor in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So that Change in cost was a huge advent for the difficulty in active management beating indexes. Um, additionally, you've had some other things. The, the advent of the exchange-traded fund, which only came about in the early 2000s, before it would be the Vanguard 500 Index Mutual Fund. And mutual funds only trade once per day, so they're illiquid comparatively and you know had some, some negative connotations. Well, now you can have that same holding the Vanguard 500 Index ETF, same assets, same securities, but you can buy and sell it all during the day and you can do it for free. So that made it more challenging for active managers to beat. And one, this is just me. I, I would say that 
I don't know that a lot of other people would say the same thing, but the advent of what's called regulation full disclosure or reg FD, which was passed by the, the SEC that effectively says, if you are a company, you can't give out information about your performance to mutual fund managers or equities, private, uh, private equity or hedge funds before the rest of the world gets it. They used to be able to do that. And so these mutual fund or active managers could actually trade before individual investors ever knew what the information was. Well, now they are by law required to disclose all information to all parties at the same time. And I think it's strange, but little things like that start to add up. And all of a sudden you have somebody trying to be an investor and make good choices long-term to beat a benchmark passive index. And yet with all the costs, they don't get information ahead of time. There's competition for the investment. They end up not doing what they say they're going to do. <laughs> so huge changes and, and, um, and and at the at the end, explain uh, again. Give us a give us two or three sentences on on uh, how the Spiva scorecard tells us about uh, actively managed funds. You know, uh, um, um, either either beating the benchmark or failing. Explain a, explain to us again, simple, like a six. Yeah, it's a simple yeah. measurement. And Spiva began in two thousand two thousand one. So there is now 20 full years of data. And all it's doing is simply tracking. If you are a large cap mutual fund that benchmarks against the S&P 500, what is your annual performance each year? And then you get annualized performance for three-year periods, five-year periods, 10-year periods. And now they have a 20-year period of return. And so it's a simple measurement of return. There's, you know, it's, it is the, it's like measuring by height. You can't cheat when you, at the end of the year, when you've reported your returns. And for all large cap U.S. domestic mutual funds, which would benchmark against the S&P 500 for 20 year period ending at the end of 2021, 95.65% of those funds did not beat the S&P 500. Hard stop. And that doesn't even take into account the tax consequences if you were owning something in a taxable account, not inside of an IRA or a 401k. And the truth is, Index funds are wildly tax efficient, so they don't throw off a lot of income that you would get taxed on during the course of a normal year. Other funds do. So the 95.65% that failed to beat the benchmark did so on an absolute basis. The four and change, 4.35 that did, or 3.35, excuse me, no, 4.35, um, you don't even know if their tax consequences made it where they didn't beat at the end of it either. So it's just stark, the statistics, and yet our industry spends all their time trying to pitch people that their active management is the way to go. Um, and I just, I think it's one of those core tenets, uh, complexity sounds better and thus you can charge more money for it. And we've just never believed in that. And we believe that at the end, we want our clients to have the best results and the best results are clear. There's no question of what the best way to do it is. Well, uh, look, uh, if, if we, if we looked at this as, um, if we said that these 7,481 funds were run by football coaches and they, uh, they failed <laughs> to hit the benchmark 96%, they would get over, fired. They, every single one of them. would. Every single fired. one of them. Yeah. And, and the few that did beat their benchmarks. And this is where some of the challenge comes in, because you you will have some people that have really good long-term performance. Yeah. And one of the ones that that 
is very well known in our industry is a guy named Bill Miller. And for years, he ran the Leg Mason Value Trust um, to the point where if there is such a thing as a rock star in the boring investment industry, this guy was it. He was on magazines. He was on TV shows. Uh, his performance beat the S&P 500 not only over a 15-year period, but every year for 15 years from 1991 through 2005. He bettered the S&P 500 every one of those years. That is unheard of. And the guy, has you, he has to be smart, and he deserves credit for that. But what is a challenge is what that does is it then creates kind of this cult of personality. And he became a superstar. People began piling into his fund. And that creates its own challenges, by the way, because the more money a person has to manage, the more decisions about companies to invest in that person has to make. And on top of that, they may start believing their own press clippings. Um, what happened to Bill Miller is unfortunate that in from 2006 through 2009, he began to really fall in love with financial stocks. And I think we know what happened in, in 2008, 2009. And at the end of the great financial crisis, the performance of his mutual fund was so bad that he didn't even find his fund in the top 50 percentile of mutual funds for large cap stocks over a 15 year period in which he had beaten the benchmark absolutely 12 of those years. So it's just a cautionary tale to be careful of the superstars. Um, Kathy Wood is another great example of that right now. Kathy Wood created what was called the ARC Innovation ETF. And she did this, I believe it was 2019-ish, uh, with the idea that we're only gonna invest in companies that will help innovate the economy and change the world. Um, and boy, did that stuff look good during the pandemic when everything was work from home and it was technology driven. And if I would encourage anybody listening to this to pull up a chart of the ARC Innovation ETF and compare it to the S&P 500, there was a period of time where she was up hundreds of percent comparatively. Um, and if you look at it as of today, after a three-year period, starting with the beginning of 2020, she's now negative almost 30% return in that three-year window. And even with the downturn we've seen this year, the S&P is up 20 some odd percent. But she's on magazines, she's on TV shows, she is the smartest person in the room until she's not. And it's a big challenge to tell people the cautionary tales like that, because you want to get caught up and it's fun. It's uh, you, I don't know if anybody's paid attention, but cryptocurrency almost blew up completely yesterday. And it's the same concept. Uh, Crypto is not, we don't even view it as an investment per se. It's a, it should be viewed as a store of value. But the idea is if you go back to this book, um, The Undoing Project, and you look at some of the work that the two psychologists, um, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky did, where they basically just showed how damaging the human brain can be to the decisions that we make on a daily basis. But most of it was built out of just a need to survive. That's how we evolved. So the fear of missing out, as we all know, is one of the most powerful things in the world. And it's hard to overcome that as an investor. Well, look at how much money they're making. I should be making that much money too. And then you pile in, and generally speaking, you do it at the absolute worst time, and it's going to come back to earth. It always does. There's a reason that stock returns are a fairly staid 7, 8, 9, maybe 10%. You can't earn more than that over long periods of time. Some people get lucky occasionally, and you know that's tough to overcome. But these 
these two in particular, Kathy Wood and Bill Miller, are very big cautionary tales about placing too much emphasis on the manager and how smart they are and that they're a superstar and they're going to make me more money than anybody else. So, Brian, he- hearing those, uh, the the stories of of people following, I love what you said. You call them the cult of personality. Uh, isn't there a song called Cult of Personality? I, uh, yeah. By yeah. The band Living Color. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, so, so talk to us a little bit about, so I, I, I think that's really interesting that someone, it, so here's my thought. My thought is, is that a, a person who's following the cult of personality, they are doing what's fashionable. They're seeing these articles or the pictures of the person they're going, well, seems like everybody else is jumping on that bandwagon. So I'm going to do that. It's fashionable. People love to do stuff that's fashionable. There's there's a sense of security, right? And then they figure, well, if that person was successful previously, then I'll jump on the bandwagon and do it. It so talk to us about <laughs> why that's, well, it, it that's speaks, not a great idea. <laughs> yeah, it speaks a lot back again to just our own brains and human behavior. And you know, on some levels, we all like to be part of a tribe. Um, so there is that kind of feeling of belonging, you know, everybody's doing that. Um, but what I always come back to is at the core, even of these folks who achieve the cult of personality, they are still just human beings and they're flawed and they make errors. Um, and, you know, again, Bill Miller was doing great for 15 years until he didn't. And same thing for Kathy Wood, just on a lesser scale. And even, you know, one of the people that um, I would allow to remain in the cult of personality, uh, easy for me to say, right? Um, Not like I'm the one who dictates that, but everybody looks at Warren Buffett as perhaps the best investor of all time. Well, number one, you can't really, even he would tell you to buy an index fund today. In fact, he does tell people that because he knows he's not going to be at Berkshire Hathaway forever. And number two, it's not because he is some clairvoyant, uh, storyteller of the future. In fact, um, he has a great quote, and I'll read it. Uh, It says, quote, we have long felt that the only value stock forecasters is to make fortune tellers look good. Uh, Even now, Charlie Munger, who is his partner, Charlie Munger and I continue to believe that short-term market forecasts are poison and should be kept locked up in a safe place away from children and also grownups who behave in the market like children, end of quote. And I think it's a great message that even the the greatest investor in the world is telling people, don't try to do this. Um, It's the reason he's so good is A, he's able to keep his emotions in check, but most importantly, B, he bought an insurance company. And every day he gets millions of dollars of insurance premiums that he gets to use. It's called float and help go out and invest new money every day. And not really no other investor has that kind of ability. So the idea is that people are flawed. Um, one of the best investors I personally had ever worked with, we invested money with this guy's uh, mutual fund for years, and then we found out he bought an airplane. Uh, the minute I found out he bought a plane, we sold everything that that we had in their portfolio because it was clear to me he was losing focus on what was important. And that doesn't mean people can't have lives, but when I added all the other evidence up about what was happening with cost and everything else, it took a qualitative piece like a, a manager buying an airplane for me to say, it's time to do something else. And so that brings us back full circle to what you said of, so what's the alternative? Um, 
And we've long since viewed investing in a much more rules-based approach. Um, the interesting part of the book I brought up earlier, The Undoing Project, which is the, the work of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky that Michael Lewis documented, actually came after he wrote the book Moneyball, which is the book about the Oakland A's and choosing baseball players based on data instead of a scout's gut. And many times the scout's guts were very large, um, but it's the same concept. Remove the emotions, remove the human flawed decision-making and put rules around a portfolio. You select securities based on what's done best. Well, the SPIVA scorecard tells us that primarily, especially in the United States, index funds pretty much do the best. And then you create an asset allocation based on a client's risk tolerance, their time horizon for when they may need money from their portfolio, and you rebalance as the market moves up and down. And thus, we've, you know, you can't ever totally remove emotions. I'm still a human being, and I have emotions, and I get upset when I see my client's portfolios going down. I don't like it for them. We care about our clients. So I have to remove my emotions as much as possible, too, so we don't make bad decisions. And, you know, nothing's perfect, but we have found that it's a far more reasonable approach and can answer the questions clients have. And then you end up coming back to what is most important, which is their financial plan. And when are you retiring? When do you need that money? And then we can use all the data back up to say, you don't have to sell anything today because we're not touching it for three years, five years, 10 years. Or if you already are, we've had a plan in place to create liquidity for the near term. So you don't have to sell stuff today when things are doing poorly. Well, really well said. And, um, you know, to all of our listeners, um, you know, this is the remember that the the title of this podcast is There is a Better Way. Uh, this is uh, you're hearing the the partners uh, and the advisors in this firm giving you um, they're sharing their wisdom of many years of working with clients, being successful. Uh, and, um, and, and over time having a, uh, your retention rate of clients is what is the percentage of retention rate? Basically 99%. Um, if, and when we lose a client, it happens from time to time. Um, it, it's rarely anything related to investment performance, or it, it's usually somehow there was some sort of personality disconnect, or, you know, there was not a fit with the advisor and the client, or in some cases we've had to, <laughs> They just say we've had to fire clients because yeah. they don't like our message. And if we can't get a client to buy into what we're talking about and take the actions that we're recommending, there's no reason for somebody to pay us in that instance. So we'd rather say, you know what, this just isn't an appropriate fit. But otherwise, we do keep our clients for a long time. And, and we believe it, it boils down to our value system, where at the top of that value system is service to the client. And that means you can't sell products that meet your needs more than theirs. You can't not listen to them. You must be proactive and talk to them and communicate and be there because people don't hire me because they want to have more money. They hire our firm because they want to be able to live and let their money provide for them to do what they want to do and enjoy their lives and spend time with their families, go to that vacation home or take a trip to Europe or whatever it might be that, that adds joy to their life. And the money is the means to that end. And so it's about service. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking today about investments because it is the in-your-face part of financial planning that more often than not trips people up 
And our industry has purposely made complicated and hard for people to feel comfortable doing. Perfectly said. Investing good stories are good. Is it good investing or just good stories and good storytellers? Yeah. it's a, it's a great way to say it. Well, Brian O'Neill, um, thank you so much for being here today uh, on the podcast. Really appreciate your time uh, dropping all kinds of knowledge. Uh, as the kids would say, uh, you're dropping knowledge on us and we really do appreciate it. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, MJ. And uh, let us say to all of our listeners, uh, we um, appreciate you uh uh, tuning in. Uh, we would love it if you would uh, write a review, give us a, uh, a rating. <laughs> we love five-star ratings. Uh, and um, of course, uh, be sure to mention uh, to people that you know that um, you're listening to the podcast. Uh, there is a better way uh, brought to you by Cahaba Wealth Management. Uh, and um, it's very easy for you to just share the podcast with a friend, someone at work and say, hey, uh, this is the firm that, um, you know, I'm either I'm either doing business with them or I'm thinking of it or I'm listening to them. Uh, and uh, as you can see, we've got uh, some real experts here uh, giving you the wisdom of their experience. And um, uh, and we do believe that there is a better way. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you on the next episode of the There Is A Better Way podcast. That concludes this episode of There Is A Better Way. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you check back regularly for new episodes and get connected to the wisdom you'll need to make confident decisions about your family's financial future and well-being. We'll see you on the next episode.